So in um, the theme that this evening, we sort of encounter God through worship, and I'm thinking a bit about the sovereignty of God, the centrality of God, that he's above all things and within all things, and just an idea, and um, it's sort of figurative language, but how do we enthrone God in our praises? How do we enthrone God in our praises? Today's passage, um, praise precedes revelation and God's manifest presence. God draws near to us and we're invited to draw close to him. Give expression to God's worth with awe, with gratitude, with words, with silence, with our whole bodies, with our whole lives. Power is released when we worship. In worship, God calls us to be honest with ourselves. In worship, there's an intimacy that we're invited into. It's probably not the sort of intimacy that we think of maybe in human relationships, but intimacy there is. We make ourselves really vulnerable uh, when we worship God. I, um, I just um, call to mind um, the woman, the sinful woman, that sort of burst into Jesus' presence. Tears sort of flooding out of her eyes, anointing his feet with oil, kissing his feet, drying um, his feet with her hair. Humble worship, unworthy as we are, yet accepted, and as she was, welcome. Um, some of us here may, um, well, you probably wouldn't be coming, most of you, if you hated singing, because um, sort of, we do quite a lot of it, don't we? But some of you might not. You sort of put up with it, really, and you, you wait for the important stuff, maybe that's coming a little bit later. But some of you might absolutely love singing. Uh, you need to uh, listen to, and music, you need to listen to Stuart's sermon for this morning. He gave a very good example about this. Um, I heard a member of staff this week, I'm not going to name any names, saying that they like the music really, really loud because it makes them free to sing as loud as they want without worrying about what anyone else is going to think about the fact that they're out of tune. Not that they are, that's just a reflection or a self-reflection. Um, but sometimes um, worship's really beautiful and we had a little bit of that this evening well, it's actually really quiet. And we're not trying too hard with our voices to belt it out. But as we sing, we're singing to God and we're listening to each other and some of the beautiful harmonies. And I know when that happens, it certainly touches my heart. And we believe that it touches God's heart too. How good and pleasant it is when people come together in unity to worship God. Personality-wise, um, I'm not very good at so, sort of conforming um, to what everyone else is doing. So it can get you in difficulty. I'm a very law-abiding citizen. But when it comes to worship, um, I think this is a bit unfair. But do you know um, um, the Chinese army when they're sort of marching or the North Korean army when they're marching. 
There's a certain unity about that, isn't there? But there's obviously a lot of fear and constraint. And I think um, as a child, I was brought up in churches where I'm not very good at multitasking and sort of, you know, I I won't give a sort of demonstration, but that's sort of quite difficult. Singing is quite a big deal. I can just about manage that and I can remember who I'm singing to. But I used to be so worried about whether I was standing up or sitting down in the right place that it just didn't really do it for me. Um, I've always um, gone to church. My dad was a a vicar, and it was um, quite a high Anglican church and very sincere, so I'm not criticizing anyone's faith, but um, at the age of eight, I was sent off to boarding school, and um, church was a sort of, even though I didn't sort of probably have a living faith, it was a little bit of a, a home from me, and any little essence of home that I could sort of cling on to before going back to boarding school, I used to. So I used to um, go to Evensong at my um, dad's church before they sort of packed me off. And, and there was a very um, enthusiastic choir, but my recollection was they were pretty rubbish, actually. And, um, and I used to be a member, so that's what sort of brought the standard down, I think, as well. But I can remember them um, singing the psalms. And um, it was absolutely dire. Yet I hear that the psalms are the church's prayer book. It took me a lot of years to get over that and to probably plumb into the riches of what we learn through the Psalms, give expression to prayers that maybe we can't sort of think up for ourselves. I was going to do a Psalm, sort of see if we could do any better this evening at singing it than sort of my recollection. Would anyone be up for that if we just started singing uh, Psalm 98? And this particular section, you can sing verses uh, 1 to 3, and this particular section maybe. You're looking a little bit worried, aren't you? (laughs) Well, I'm not going to make you do that. And as much as I criticise the worship of my childhood memory, at least they were worshipping, and at least they were trying to give God his worth. Singing and music have always been part of of worship for the people of God. And I'm sure some of you have got some wonderful moments that you could share where God was particularly present for you. I think we need to remember those moments, retell those moments, but have the expectation that the last moment that we had encountering God isn't the last moment. This is an ongoing, continuous process. Those of you... um, who've got your Bibles. I'm not going to refer um, line by line, but I'm going to refer to a few bits from the passage from um, 2 Chronicles 5. And just in terms of background, Israel were a nomadic people. God had led the people by fire and cloud. They're now settled in the promised land. And um, David was established before as king, and he was desperate, actually, um, to bring the ark of the covenant, which had been with them in the tabernacle for a little, a little while. But there was, a, there was some faltering attempts 
of getting it there. Some of you know the story of Uzzah. And this feels a little bit cruel, actually. Uh, the oxen stumbles, he reaches out and touches the ark, and that's the end of Uzzah. And that fills the whole community uh, with fear. Thankfully, David, with God's permission, had another opportunity. We know we had a series on this a little while ago, but David, so excited, enthusiastic, dressed in next to nothing, dancing before the ark, his wife uh, despising him in her heart, but praise and worship leading the ark of the covenant into Jerusalem. David thought it'd be a rather fine idea to build a temple. And uh, because he had so much blood on his hands, the Lord didn't want him to build it, but he gave him the revelation about how the temple was to be built and built, and David got to collect all the materials and the job for building the temple was going to be with Solomon. So there's a picture of uh, Solomon's temple and um, we know that was torn down and it was rebuilt and then under uh, King Herod who's uh, not known for his kindness and generosity, I don't think, just killing people. Um, in about 20 BC, he expanded the rebuilt temple. Then, a little bit later on, um, what no temple? There's the Wailing Wall today in AD 70. The temple was torn down. It was torn down um, after Jesus' death and resurrection. Jesus had promised, referring to himself, that he was the temple that was going um, to be destroyed and rebuilt in three days. And what's even more wondrous, and it's a message for us, the church, and maybe I'll hint at this a little bit later, um, we now are God's holy temple, his people, and he wants to fill us with his presence. I just wonder well, this is, I'm sort of a bit of a visual person. And we've got a, a little film clip now about what the temple might have looked like. The first temple, Solomon's temple. Solomon's temple was built to the most precise dimensions. It was built with the finest materials. At its center was the holy place where the ark of the covenant would reside. The temple was a sacred place, God's touching place, if you like, his footstool on earth. The temple is a physical representation of God's presence here on earth with us. The ark was placed in the temple. Um, one of the most extraordinary things I imagine that's ever happened. A celebration of relationship between God and his people. A celebration of architecture, riches, beauty, abundance. A celebration with sacrifice. So many sheep and cattle sacrificed that you couldn't count them. A feast for the senses. Sight smell, sound, touch, heat, commotion, awe and wonder. 2 Chronicles 5-7 tell us that the priests brought the ark of the Lord's covenant to its place in the inner sanctuary of the temple, the most holy place, and put it beneath the wings of the cherubim. They carried 
the ark on poles that were so, so long, maybe they were fearful that their fate would be similar to that of Uzzah if they, by accident, touched the ark. There's nothing except two stone tablets in the ark. And as I was uh, reading about this, the scale of the temple was huge, much bigger than the tabernacle, but the things that didn't change was the size of the ark or the tablets of stone. They were fixed for all time. The priests withdrew from the holy place. All the priests had consecrated themselves. This feels um, like a joy-filled celebration. It was as they sang that the Lord's presence was manifest in the temple. I don't understand why, but maybe it's something to do with confessing with our mouth and believing in our hearts. There's power when we sing and proclaim. You get to play. I'm going to say he is good. Then we can say he is good. His love endures forever. He is good. He is good. His love endures forever. The Levites and the priests joined together, a band, a choir, dressed in fine linen. He is good. He is good. His love endures forever. They did it with cymbals and harps and lyres, accompanied by 120 priests blasting trumpets. He is good. He is good. His love endures forever. This sort of praise and worship overrides our personal circumstances. It's a choice attributing to God what's right and always true. He is good. He is good. His love endures forever. They did it with raised voices, wholeheartedly enthroning God on their praises. He is good. He is good. His love endures forever. Our worship of God, I think, is a test of authenticity. Does it match up to how we live our lives? Well, maybe not every day, but our heart attitude, I'm sure for many of us, is to live in faithful service and to honor God with our words and with our actions. The Levites, the first worship leaders, form the band, 2 Chronicles 5, 13 and 14. Then, only after singing, the temple of the Lord was filled with a cloud and the priests couldn't perform their service because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the temple of God. Again, in 2 Chronicles, after Solomon had prayed for the dedication of the temple, chapter 7, verses 1 and 2, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. The priests couldn't enter the temple of the Lord because the glory of the Lord had filled it. When we think about God's glory, we think about something that's tangible, something that's weighty. In this situation, something that stopped them being able to do what they felt called to do. God's Shekinah glory. The meaning is him dwelling amongst them, 
them making space for him in the temple, but also needing to make space for him in their hearts and lives. They couldn't know it, but their building of the temple was only a temporal thing. It isn't possible to contain the glory of the Lord in a box or in a temple. All the heaven and the earth and the stars and the galaxies can't um, uh, contain his glory. Most significantly for us, God's glory was expressed most fully in the Lord Jesus Christ. At Christmas, in readings from John's Gospel, the Word became flesh and had his dwelling amongst us. And we got to see his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father full of grace and truth. I'm just wondering how we do this shift from recognizing who Jesus is, for coming, drawing near to him in worship, and then through that, receiving his new birth within our lives. Those of us that are Christians will know what this, what this is. See, we are God's temple, and his Holy Spirit lives in us. As we worship God, his holy presence is revealed and we become most fully alive. Let's raise our voices and enthrone God in our praises, for he is good, he is good, his love endures forever. I'd like to, I'd like to pray, and um, I think Richard's gonna be leading a communion in a few moments, but just as, um, as you sit, words sort of feel, um, the preacher says, words feel very inadequate sometimes. And actually, Tom, before the service, thought it'd be good to just leave a little bit of space. So I think we just do that now. And we focus on a God who is good despite your circumstances. We were hearing about that last week from Paul. And maybe, just maybe, we can feel the weighty, loving presence of the living God. Let's just, just wait for a few moments on him. In the Old Testament temple, in Solomon's temple, they had to do endless sacrifices. Today, we declare that Jesus is the once for all sacrifice for the sins of the whole world. We receive your forgiveness. The Bible teaches us that we're holy because God is holy. Lord, we invite your holy presence to come now like a refiner's fire to burn away the dross in our lives and to fill us afresh with your life-giving spirit. Come, holy God.